Hi, and welcome to Shireside Chats, a podcast from Fandom Forward featuring conversations with activists, leaders, and writers about the pop culture that made them who they are. I'm your host, Sabrina Carton, and today I'm speaking with actor and cartoonist Leela Lee, creator of Angry Little Asian Girl, about representation of Asian women in film and television and why her fandom is the internet. To celebrate Oscar season, we'll also be geeking out over everything, everywhere, all at once. So, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen this incredible movie yet, turn off this podcast and come back when you have. Leela Lee is a cartoonist, writer, and actor. You might know her best as the character Bonnie on Scrubs, Jodie Chang on the show Tremors, or from numerous guest roles on Better Call Saul, Friends, Will and Grace, Charmed, and there are many, many more shows, too many to name here. While studying at UC Berkeley, Leela created Angry Little Asian Girl, an animated cartoon and comic series about a grade school Korean-American girl named Kim, who unleashes her anger at the various injustices of life. In nearly 30 years of creating the franchise, Leela has grown Angry Little Asian Girl into an international phenomenon, with merch sold around the world, including numerous books and a 12-part television special starring Leela Lee and Margaret Cho. Now, before we get started, just a quick reminder that this is an independently produced podcast, and you can support it and support Fandom Forward by visiting fandomforward.org donate, or by becoming one of our Patreon subscribers at patreon.com forward slash fandom forward. Now, on to the show. Hi, Leela, and welcome to Shireside Chats. How are you doing today? I'm good, Sabrina. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited because, well, we've worked together before, but I am a fan of your work. Tell me a little bit more about what you do. I am a cartoonist. Uh, I'm an actress and I'm also a writer. So in terms of the cartooning, um, I've been drawing a comic strip and I've actually been doing it for probably longer than acting because I did it in college and I created a character called Angry Little Asian Girl my sophomore year and then I kept it hidden in a drawer for like an indefinite amount of years. It was actually four years that I, I left it untouched. And then during that time, I started majoring in drama. I double majored in drama and rhetoric. I ended up dropping drama because rhetoric got me out of school faster. I was acting while I was in college and I was just kind of this swirling wind of like something creative trying to come out. And then at that time, when I took a, a acting workshop, it was taught by a bunch of Asian American working actors, which blew my mind to see the East West Players Summer Workshop taught by working Asian actors. One of the teachers sat us down, he's Filipino, and he said, you know, it's really hard for me to get roles and it's going to be hard for you too. And the way we change that is by writing. And that I just needed to hear because I was like, I must write. And so I went home and I wrote my first play that night. So it was around that time in college, my like sophomore year, making a cartoon and taking an acting workshop and then being told I need to start writing. It was all sort of like this swirling internal hurricane of like trying to become a storyteller. And so that's kind of how I, I started. But uh, right when I got out of college, the first thing that gave me sort of like outward success was acting. 
So as soon as I graduated college, I was cast in two independent movies called Yellow and Better Luck Tomorrow. And then I immediately kind of got my SAG card and I just started working a lot. And my mom hated that. So she made me work at her dry cleaners. And then because I was at the dry cleaners for long stretches of days, like hours, um, I just I started doodling again episodes of Angry Little Asian Girl. So that's how Angry Little Asian Girl came to life. What we're going to talk about today mostly focuses on your fandom, both as an actor in Hollywood and as a writer and a cartoonist. Um, you're not just a fan. You have your own fandom, so to speak. I want to talk a little bit more about that and about Asian American representation in media, particularly for women. Before we dive in, I just wanted to ask, are you ready to get cozy? I am. I have chamomile tea. I have chamomile tea too. We're twins. I like because it's caffeine free. I like because we've run out of all of the other stuff that I like. I usually drink green tea, which is also, I think, caffeine free for the most part. No, it's not. It's not. Okay. I'm wrong about tea. You're, yeah, <laughs> you've been wired all this time and you don't know because you're Sabrina and you run you run it all cylinders. You're like, it's no caffeine, I'm fine. Well, it's funny because I usually will have green tea before bed to relax. And I'm like, why am I awake? Oh, oh no. You gotta switch oh, no. chamomile. chamomile before bed. I'm getting schooled on on green tea. I wanna ask you a little bit about what you told me recently, which was that you're a fan of the internet rather than a fan of one particular franchise. Let's talk about that and break it down. Why are you a fan of the internet? Well, I got my start on the internet um, when I started Angry Little Asian Girl and I was trying to get syndicated in you know, the, the traditional newspapers. I kept getting rejected. I, I think I got rejected for five years from all of the syndicates. Finally, on the fifth year, I just kind of gave up. And then I decided to to focus on self-publishing on online. So I put it on my website and I sold shirts on the internet. I used to process the orders on dial-up. And then after I processed it, I would walk the packages over to the post office. So I would not have had any feedback, I would have just been, I don't know, I would have been drawing, I I probably would not have kept going if I didn't have the internet, because the internet was how other Asian kids like me and I connected. And I was putting my art out there. And then somewhere in like Idaho or Texas and New Jersey were these Asian kids growing up, you know, feeling like outliers that found my comic online and read it regularly, like messaged me and the messages and emails I received were so full of feeling that I knew I had to keep going. Like in 1998, after I was working, well, I was still working at my, my mom's dry cleaners and I put together four more episodes to add to the first Angry Little Asian Girl episode. And I had a screening at the American Cinematheque and it created kind of a 
buzz. So studio executives wanted to, to see it. And one of the executives said, there's no market for Asians. And then another development executive said, oh, it's, it's really cute, but could we take the Asian girl out of this? And I felt really strongly that that was not going to, I was never going to do that. So I just, I put it online and I was able to sort of organically grow a fan base that these important experts didn't know existed. But I intuitively knew, I was like, there's got to be more people like me. So I kind of issued what they advised me to do. I just kind of like said, I don't think, no, I'm going to pass on this. And I just continued to grow my website and and I made myself draw every week and post a a webcomic. And I've been very consistent for, (laughs) I think I've been drawing for 28 years and I've drawn every week since... Like, I just, I mean, it's not hard to do. It's like, I like to do it anyway. And it's a way for me to process sort of my daily grievances or observations. And I like making people laugh. So I'm a big fan of the internet because that was really how I found people that needed to hear what I had to say. And it was sort of a symbiotic relationship because I needed to hear that they appreciated it for me to keep going because my mom hated that I did this. The executives thought it was stupid. (laughs) Like nobody was telling me like, yeah, keep going and make this comic strip about an angry Asian female. Like, yeah, you're going to be so successful. (laughs) No one was telling that to me. But it was just the connections that I made with these people across the, I don't know, the internet web waves that I was like, wow, I, I'm going to keep doing this because it's it's touching somebody. Yeah. Now I'm saying this because this is an audio medium, but when you said important experts, you used the air quotes. I find that really interesting, this fact that you built your brand and built your cartoon and your comics essentially out of feedback from Asian American communities around the country and possibly around the world. What was the kind of feedback that you were receiving that was so affirming to you from these people? Oh, gosh, like, thank you so much. I always felt like I had to be quiet, but but this character is saying all the things I feel and, and have kept hidden. I I also got reprimands from a lot of Korean men. One particular memorable email was from like the vice president of Hanjin Export, whatever that shipping container company is. And he was like, you're an embarrassment to Korean women everywhere. So I was like, oh, okay, wow. And I think back when I started, I, I didn't have the words to pinpoint the sort of ingrained misogyny in certain cultures. But I do think that there are aspects of my culture that are really unfair to women. But as I've worked it out and unpacked sort of what I had to deal with, I've gotten the vernacular and vocabulary to sort of explain and articulate just how harmful it is. And then the the people that uh, a lot of Asian women who were like me that knew it was unfair, but didn't have the vocabulary or the confidence 
or the lack of fear that you would need to actually speak your mind about these things. Because I think that when you, when you're an Asian female in a family and you voice something that's unfair, there's no dialogue. It's all just top down dialogue. So when a young girl, you know, there's so much gender preference in Asian culture that when a young girl speaks, it's really disregarded. So the, the people, the fans that I was really reaching were the ones that really needed to hear like, oh my God, this little Asian girl's angry and she's mad at these things. And I'm too. And I guess like, I guess I was helping a lot of Asian female family members who felt gaslit and ignored and disregarded. I, I think I validated that they were not crazy. And I will say as, I don't think disclaimer is the right word, but I do recognize that not all Asian girls' experiences are the same and not all Asian families are the same. But I will say that as someone with an Asian parent who was an immigrant, I definitely feel this. And this is actually part of why I wanted to have this conversation. And also just that angry little Asian girl represents so much of those pent-up emotions and the experience of being a first-generation American. And we're going to talk a little bit today about Angry Little Asian Girl and how you grew up with not very much representation, not being able to see yourself in American media, and how that compares to media today with movies like Everything Everywhere All at Once, Turning Red, other similar hit movies. So let's talk a little bit about representation in the media for someone like you. What was that like when you were growing up and what was the media that you were interested in? Because you told me um, that you weren't part of any fandom in a meaningful way when you were a kid. And I want to I want to dive in on why that is. Yeah, I was not really allowed to watch television in the way that most kids were allowed to consume TV. The TV was like a like a tool to sort of occupy and distract and be like a parent because our our parents weren't always home. But as soon as they were home, it was off. We had to be studious. We had to be cleaning. We had to be productive. I did watch, you know, like Leave it to Beaver, Happy Days, Fat Albert. You know, I, I watched Popeye and Pippi Longstocking and stuff like that. But, but I never really felt like I was allowed to really express my fandom for these shows or for um, popular media because my parents did not allow that like it was it was like television was on when they weren't home so it was sort of like a secret thing so the representation that I had was that it wasn't television wasn't for me these families were not like my family. And there were like two sets of rules, like the rules for Americans and then there were rules in our house. So I definitely knew that there was like a split, like there was something like a code switch I had to do when I went out to school. I don't know. I just felt like the, I couldn't consume media like my friends did. Like they, you know, got Wonder Woman outfits and underoos and stuff like that. But that just was like not, something that I knew my parents would ever buy for me, you know? Yeah. But you did say that you identified in some way with characters like Nancy Drew and Ramona the Brave. You just didn't take it so far as as many fans do. Yeah. So I loved um, reading Ramona the Brave books 
I felt that she like her, she was so spirited. She, I always pictured her like with dirty hair with like uh, scabs on her knees and like, just kind of just scruffy and scrappy. And then um, Nancy Drew, I loved reading those books because first of all, I always finished them really fast because, you know, it's a mystery. You always want to figure out what's happening, but she was so persistent and she was so smart about getting to the bottom of the truth. I did like those um, two literary heroines a lot, but yeah, I never, I never got so... I didn't become like a super fan of them. I was supposed to be reserved. So I just sort of like, I just was like, oh yeah, I like them. But, um, and I guess maybe I like Nancy Drew and Ramona the Brave a little bit more than television because those were books (laughs) and those were allowed. Well, going back to your acting career, I think I would be remiss if I didn't talk about all of these amazing appearances that you've made on shows like Scrubs, where you've portrayed Bonnie, who I believe was a surgeon. Do I have that correct? Yeah, she was a surgical intern. She's um, so much she, fun. And she was always sparring with Turk, which was really, really a fun part of the show. And I wish I had seen, you know, 20 more episodes with that storyline you know actually okay i i had a feeling that they were gonna write a storyline for bonnie and turk to spar like that because the way that i got onto scrubs was i saw a preview for scrubs on on tv and i just immediately like sat up and noted the humor and i was like i love that show i don't know what it is but i need to be on it So I called up my agent and I was like, can you get me on that new show Scrubs? And she was like, oh, sure. Um, Okay. Uh, Like anything? And I'm like, anything, anything, just a line, anything. I was at this point in my career where I could, I could only do guest spots because as you sort of like, you know, pay your dues, you kind of climb the ladder of like the parts you'll take. So I was at the guest spot level, but, um, but I was like, I really want to do anything. I'll just stand there even (laughs) like, I want to be on the show. So she got me a uh, audition for a co-star bit. And then I was just so happy to be on set. And then Bill Lawrence uh, wrote a bigger part for me and gave me a name the next time. And then I had so much fun with that. And then he asked me back. And then I could tell that the the storyline was going to become sort of like a, maybe like a jealous love triangle with Judy Reyes's character. I forget the, is it Carla? So I thought- that that was definitely going to happen because at the read through, um, it was pretty evident, but it ended up being that I auditioned for Tremors and I got a series regular role and I had to tell them at the read through that I was leaving because I, it shot on location in Baja, California. And, um, the writers were really mad. (laughs) I was like, I'm sorry. So yeah. Oops. Um, but tell me a little bit more about Tremors because that, as a sci-fi show has its own pretty fun fandom and, and ecosystem. Oh yeah. Tremors was really fun. Um, we shot in Baja, California. I was a bit homesick because um, I just had never really been away from my home base for that long. So I think we shot on set in location for about three months, but I would drive up on the weekends so I could draw a comic and post it to the website (laughs) every weekend. Yeah, it was really fun. And I didn't really realize how, how vocal and active the Tremors fan base is and was 
so I would do San Diego Comic-Con as a cartoonist and I would uh, get a table. And a lot of people that would come up and say, hi, we're also Tremors fans. So it's really a franchise that's got, you know, the movies, the original movies. And then it's got, I think, direct-to-video movies as well. And then it had the series. And I think that something else was developed. And I don't know, it's just, it just keeps going. It's really just this own sort of um, world about these these graboids and has its own rules. It was fun. It was really a lot of fun to work on it. So in this conversation so far, you've really taken me on a journey over the last 25 years or so, which is such an interesting period if you think about representation of, of Asian Americans in media and Asian American women in particular. Your story is so interesting to me because you've held so many different roles in that work of making Asian American representation more fair and accurate. What's the difference that you see between being an actor versus being a cartoonist? Um, so when I first started acting, a lot of the mainstream television roles I went out for were really like very sort of maybe flat. Like there was a general sort of like struggling aspect because I think that's what outsiders see. They're, they're struggling to be economically thriving or, you know, that, but that's kind of like anybody on the outside could see that. But it wasn't until like maybe 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, where I was watching Grey's Anatomy and there's this episode where Sandra O's character goes fishing for fun. And she catches this huge fish and she's so happy holding this fish that she starts to cry. And she's crying because she's like, oh my God, I'm having fun. And I was like, holy moly, like that is so accurate to the Asian psyche. I was like, wow, that is amazing. Like whoever wrote that, like I got to give them props. So it wasn't until like a few years before COVID, I was at a house party and Sandra O oh attended and I was like, oh my God, I have to tell you that one episode of Grey's Anatomy where you went fishing and you caught a fish and you started crying was so good. It was so accurate to the Asian psyche. I was like, who wrote that? And she was like, oh, so she told me the name, but I, I, it, I didn't, I don't remember the name. I'm so sorry, but I could look it up. But anyway, so she told me the name and she said, that she'd been working on that show for so long. And when you are an actor and you work with writers in the writer's room, they get to know the nuances of all the actors personally. So they had um, developed a friendship and gotten to know each other. And so that writer wrote that with Sandra's input of like how she is and her um, observations and her sort of like depth of feeling. And I was like, wow, that was amazing. I think also Shonda Rhimes has a lot to do with it because she was a woman of color. She was writing and casting as she saw people in life. So it was the cast and the shows were also really diverse. And it was around that time that I really saw a change. Like we turned the corner and I started to see a lot more Asian writers' names on scripts and in development. And then I started to read that the roles had more depth, more, more, more dimension that of, of things that only actual Asians would know. So, um, so it's been really exciting. And then all the movies that are coming out with Asian writers at the helm, it's, it's oh, so great. It's so great. I'm so happy. Me too. 
One of the things you told me when we first started talking about the idea of having this conversation was that when you're an actor, you're really just kind of speaking to directions you've been given. I mean, you can interpret and a lot of it is in body language and, and emotional experience. But at the end of the day, you are saying what you are told to say. When you're an actor on um, on set, you're really executing the vision of somebody else and you have to honor that. That's your job. So I think you have to be kind of careful about where where you contribute your opinions because when you're on set on someone else's project it's not your place to give feedback it's actors are not supposed to really do that unless you're like the star you know I'm I'm not in that position to give feedback as a star I'm really always like somebody who like uh propels the story forward for the main characters so I'm very careful about that which is why like when I'm a cartoonist I don't have to worry about that. It's kind of just whatever I want to make. So it gives me freedom to do that. But I definitely know, I know the role I'm playing wherever I'm going. Like I know that there's rules to enter, rules to maintain and rules to exit. And, you know, you don't, um, you don't pretend that you're the boss when you're really not. So I'm very careful about whose vision it is that I am here to fulfill. Yeah. And just to reiterate, it sounds like you have done a really amazing job navigating the different roles and, and power structures um, that exist in Hollywood and in media outside of Hollywood in, in sort of like online creation and self publishing. I have a really great story, though. Sure. So um, I played a mom on this show called Growing Up Fisher. We're shooting a dinner scene in the dining room of a Korean house because the family was Korean and they had the plastic long Chinese chopsticks. And I was like, those are not Korean chopsticks. Like, and I was like torn. I'm like, do I say something? Cause I'm so used to being very like respectful of like, this is somebody else's set. But I was like, you know what though, if I was creating the show, I would want to know because this is going to be broadcast nationally. Like, and if someone didn't tell me, I'd be really upset. So I found a PA and I'm like, hey, um, I don't know where you need to funnel this up to, but like, these are the wrong chopsticks. Koreans would use the thin metal ones. And I just, I just needed to say this because it's going to be broadcast. This is like a, a dining table scene. Like 15 minutes later, the writer creator comes down. I was like, oh my God, we have the wrong chopsticks. Okay. What do we need to do? Okay. We need to get this. Somebody get the right ones. So I was like, thank you. I'm so happy that my um, observation was welcome and that they cared to actually change it. And um, that was kind of another thing that I noticed around the time of like Shonda Rhimes and, and diversity was just really like being regarded as something worthy of actually getting right. That's amazing. I'm so glad that you told me that story. So now I want to talk about everything everywhere all at once and turning red. I know you have very strong opinions on both. Tell me what you think. Okay. So I watched everything everywhere all at once for like the third time. 
Because the first time I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm kind of confused about the worlds that they're jumping. And then I kind of was like so stuck on the rules that I kind of didn't get the end part of the, the film. So when I watched it for the second time and then the third time, I was like, this is actually really brilliant because it's delivered in such a way that the message of being happy with the world that you are in right now is something that like the mom couldn't do. And it's also manifested in like her IRS audit with like all the, all the hobbies that she's trying to go after. Cause she's just not happy with what she has. And then the dialogue where the dad was talking about how the mom saw the potential in one person and, and then they, they shoot to joy and she's got all these like shockwaves in her brain. And then she's so angry at her mom. And she's also kind of confused because I I felt like the everything bagel is kind of symbolic of like a circle of confusion because everything on a bagel, it's this simple sort of symbolism of something she wants. I mean, I don't know. It was just really kind of uh, layered in a way that I, I know I'm getting this, like, I'm probably missing more meanings, but, but in the end, what I loved was that he had said to his wife, you know, in this life, I would have really loved to just do laundry and taxes with you. And it's really all that really is, is like, be present, enjoy your family, enjoy your daughter. And then the nuances of the the Asian psyche was I was like, okay, so when they're rocks and the mom is apologizing and she's a rock, but they're not talking. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, that's kind of like turning red because when the mom and the daughter and turning red have a conflict, they actually turn into pandas and then they start flying and then they fight in the sky. So I was like, oh, that's so genius because I think the writers, I don't know if it was purposeful or intuitive, but they both knew that seeing a mother and a daughter fighting, like if the daughter was to talk back to an elder, it's so grotesque, like it's so offensive that the meaning of her gripe or concern is actually diminished because she's so, she's like broken the cardinal rule of respecting your elders. I thought it was genius that the filmmakers of both movies like made the real human characters into something else. Yeah, I felt like those are things that um, only Asian people would know <laughs> that we're <laughs> supposed to do this. So I was like, Ah, this is really cool. Yeah, I think it really resonates for people who have a difficult time communicating with their parents. And as you said, this metaphor of turning into a rock or a panda in the case of turning red, it's about saying all of the things that, that can't be said. It's about finding a different way to communicate. I don't know. Maybe it's not that deep, but it certainly hit home for me and for a lot of people. Yeah. And I feel that people like us who are not part of the mainstream, we're, we're so hungry for anything that is representative of us. And then, you know, I feel like a lot of people after like the Asians that kind of like in my day-to-day -day life that I saw, they were like, oh, I love crazy rich Asians, but like, I'm not rich. And then so I'm like, but okay, it doesn't actually reflect your richness, but like, isn't it great that it's like an Asian movie. So I feel like, I don't know if it's like Asians just being critical all the time, if it's just like a knee-jerk reaction that they have to criticize everything because it's not really like accurate. But yeah, I remember I went to a coffee shop. I was a regular and I know the owner and I'm like, oh my God, did you see Crazy Rich Asians? It was so fun. And he was like, 
well, and he, he totally criticized it. I forget what his gripe was, was that it, you know, it was just too flamboyant and it's not the life he knows. And I was like, okay, so someone else needs to be another movie. That's like, not that, but I don't know if it's just Asians that are criticizing and and this is also a generalization and it's also a disclaimer not all Asians criticize everything but there is a tendency because our parents are generally critical that we have picked up this habit as well yeah I I was like I am happy about this movie but I didn't know what to say to that I was like but it's it shouldn't reflect your life because it's not about you it's about these people so then also too there was criticism with fresh off the boat about the um the accent that the parents had and that it made them look bad and then I was like but there are Asians that have accents so should we hide them like I mean I was like I can't I don't know I just feel like you should just tell the story you want to tell you're never going to please everybody but one creative project will not represent all of Asians in America. It's a very provocative question. And I believe that the answer is yes, we need to create more and more stories, particularly autobiographical stories where they come up. For the creator of Fresh Off the Boat, it seems like that was his experience based off of his memoir. So I'm assuming that it is largely true to life. Sometimes it can actually be very comforting and familiar to hear the person, you know, who is playing the grandparent speak English the way that you know your grandparents would, right? Um, no, that's an excellent point on on accents. Well, I also think that maybe there's just this defensiveness that Asians have because they've been caricatured for so long that they don't want to be the butt of people's jokes. And I think maybe the knee-jerk reaction is that the broken English makes them look dumb or something. But the whole family is also a generation. I mean, there's the kids speak perfect English. So I think it's accurate to have accents. I remember, so going back to the episode where the dining scene that I was shooting, I was shooting for a couple of days, but like they kept making me switch accents. So I was like, I had a broken accent because I owned a donut shop and I was an immigrant mom. And then the next time they're like, speak perfect English. And I'm like, but I already shot scenes and it's not going to match. So I was really frustrated. So I kind of like dialed down the accent, but it was, um, I was like, this is not going to match what I just shot, but that's what they want. And I'm going to look stupid, but whatever. It just was like, it was, it was one of those um, situations where I was like, okay, it's not my place to fight them on this. I'll just do what they ask me, but change it just a little bit, like keep it the way I want it. But that's an instance where I think they were so sensitive. And here I am an Asian person who is saying like, but my parents speak like this. There are people that speak like this and I, I know what this accent sounds like, so I can do this, but they were so careful that I think it became just about the accent instead of about the human story. Yeah. We could talk for hours about the past and about your work, but I do want to ask you about Korean culture today and how it's become very popular in Western media. You have K-pop, K-dramas, Korean food, which is not really a part of media, but is very trendy, um, especially for, for Gen Z white kids. 
as a Korean-American mom to two boys, have you noticed a difference in their relationship to pop culture and to Asian-ness because of that? Yeah, I've really seen how different it is because back when I was growing up, people would ask me, what are you? And I'd say, um, I'm Korean. And they'd be like, what's that? You know, because the only two other options is Chinese or Japanese. So they didn't know what, what Korea was. But I was at Target and I was behind a mom and a daughter. They were both white. And the, the mom had already checked out and she she was standing waiting for her daughter to buy the thing that she was purchasing with her allowance. And she was buying a K-pop set. And I was like, what? Like, this is amazing. Like, this white girl in like suburbia has saved her allowance for a K-pop DVD set, like or music set. And I was just like, this is crazy. Like, I just never thought being Korean would ever be cool. So for my sons, what I've noticed is that they're not like in the icky group. When I was in middle school, I liked this boy, but the boy, like he just kind of ignored me. But later I found out that he did like me. He just couldn't show that he liked me because I was Asian. So also when I was in high school, I went to an all girls school and my friends were like, oh, there's this boy at the all boys school because we had a brother school and you should go out with him. He was the only other Asian at the school. And I just thought, gosh, so I'm only allowed to date an Asian boy. And like the other kid in middle school couldn't like me because I was Asian. So it was kind of like, I was just like gross. I was just icky. But for my boys, I definitely see that they feel like, like attractive, like they're like, okay, they're like acceptable. So they feel like they're not outliers. They're not going to be picked last or whatever. So I definitely have seen a difference in my kids' generations. It's just, which is really nice because I don't want them to feel icky like I did. And we don't want them to feel icky either. And K-pop rules. And I love Korean food. So you've, you've got a million amazing things going on for your culture. And I'm really glad that we get to experience them. Leela Lee, thank you for joining us on Shireside Chats. Take care. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Shireside Chats is an independent production of Fandom Forward, executive produced by Brian Carton and hosted and produced by me, Sabrina Carton. Special thanks to Claire Ty and, of course, to our Patreon subscribers. To follow us and learn more about supporting fan activism, visit fandomforward.org. Thanks for listening.